from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I've spoken with you many times on this broadcast about the oxymoron of the smart home that's being sold to us. You know, connect your light bulbs, your doorbells, your baby monitors, your baby monitors to the Internet because nobody's lurking out there. But International Business Times brings our attention this week to the widespread use of Internet-connected devices in the business, business world. Smart business, you might call it, if you were not that smart. Nearly a half of all companies in the United States that use an Internet of Things network have been affected by a security breach that has cost those companies serious money. The impact of insecure IoT networks comes from a survey conducted by strategy consulting firm Altman Villandri and Company. It surveyed 400 information technology executives across 19 industries that count on Internet-connected devices to help manage their business. Not their light bulbs. Not their babies. Their business. While customers may purchase connected devices like Wi-Fi-enabled thermostats and light bulbs, businesses have long integrated the IoT. And as the San Diego desk points out, you can't spell idiot without into their operations to help track products and manage workflow from the assembly line to shipping and delivery. 48% of companies that use Internet-enabled technologies as part of their supply chain have experienced at least one security breach. Nearly one in two businesses can be put at risk by unsecured IoT networks. Businesses that experienced breaches didn't just see their network compromised or data put at risk of falling into the hands of a malicious actor. They reported tangible losses in revenue as a result of the failure to provide proper security. The cost of the breaches represented 13.4% total revenues for companies with revenues under $5 million. For larger firms, the costs could reach tens of millions of dollars. Well, that's real money. While an IoT network presents its own unique challenges for businesses, a majority of companies do not dedicate the resources necessary to protect and maintain Internet-enabled systems. 68% of the respondents to the survey said they think about IoT security as a distinct category. Only 43% have created a standalone budget to pay for it. Nearly three in four businesses centralize their IoT security decisions despite different parts of the network requiring individual needs. Those companies that have dedicated resources to security have seen better results Go figure. The 52% of, comp- 52% of companies that have not experienced a breach have invested 65% more in security than those who have been breached. Well, duh! Of companies concerned about securing their networks, preventing loss of control over IoT devices ranks as the top concern. Preventing breaches of customer information and preventing breaches of company data are ranked as the next most important goal. But loss of control, you see... I think we can all identify with that, especially in this. Speaking of which, a word long banished from political discourse has finally come into its own this week. For as long as I can remember, it was de rigueur. 
Thank you very much for politicians and those who comment on politics to suggest that those in power who spoke less than truthfully were misspeaking, were a bit loose with the truth, or other euphemisms. This year, this year and this week, particularly, given the testimony of former FBI Director James Comey, that he was a medically induced Comey, by the way, and uh, the response from Donald Tr- <laughs> President Trump, the word liar has come back into the political lexicon with a vengeance. Tom? A liar has come back into the lexicon. Mm-hmm. Thank you for those thoughts. So it really is an age in which you can safely call anybody who disagrees with you or whose version of reality disagrees with you. Not mistaken, not misspoken, not misspoken, but a liar. Welcome to the 21st century. Hello, welcome to the show. From the edge of America, from the home 
of the homeless, and now it's official. More homeless people in Los Angeles County than uh, anybody ever believed possible. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of Le Show. And now... I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. Well, not really. Humans, that's us, I think, are at risk of ingesting microplastics by eating fish, your, your trout and your salmon, or swallowing the tiny particles in water, according to new research reported by the Irish Independent. The Irish Inven- Environmental Protection Agency, to EPA, says the waste industry and water treatment plants are among the biggest sources of microplastics in the environment. 24 species of mollusks, mollusks, birds, fish, and mammals, and your crustaceans, can be affected if they ingest the tiny plastic particles. They're less, less than 0.2 inches in diameter. Microplastics are formed either through the breakdown of large plastic particles or through the intentional production of teeny nanoproducts for uses in cosmetics and cleaning agents, because those are so important. Many become trapped in wastewater treatment plant sludges and then are spread over agricultural land. That poses a risk to ecosystems. The Irish government is proposing a ban. New research funded by TIR, uh, sorry, the TIEPA provides data and evidence on the sources and scale of microplastic pollution in Irish fresh water for the first time. It suggests the best way to tackle microplastic pollution is to remove it at source. Yeah. Rather than address it after pollution occurs. In the well-duh department, among the main sources, the plastics, manufacturing, and recycling industries, landfills, urban wastewater treatment plants, septic tanks, and the sewage sludge biosolids derived from such plants. Urban wastewater treatment plants were identified as one of the largest point sources of microplastics in the current study. They're receiving microplastics from a number of different sources, says the report. Spreading wastewater sludge onto agricultural land could pose a risk to human health, according to one of the researchers. In addition to microbeads washed into the sewer from the use of personal care products, ooh, gee, your hair smells like microplastics, synthetic fibers from clothing transported in washing machine wastewater are another significant contributor of microplastics. Although some are discharged with the wastewater into freshwater systems, most of these fibers become trapped in sewage sludge at treatment plants. And, of course, as I said, land spreading. Land spreading, not man spreading, land spreading. New word, thank you, is a potential further risk to freshwater. The study highlighted a number of potential risks to humans arising from the microplastics in drinking water. Consuming freshwater fish such as salmon or trout, which have been exposed to or have ingested microplastics, or accidentally swallowing contaminated water while swimming. 24 different species identified mollusks, fish, birds, mammals, and crustaceans as being potentially at risk from microplastic pollution in Ireland, many of which are now classified as endangered or vulnerable. Well, maybe they want to just check out. Might be a good idea. 
This research provides us with vital national-level data and information on the environmental sources and risks posed by microplastics in Irish fresh waters, said one of the researchers. Consumers, she added, can help by checking the product labels for cosmetics and cleaners to see if they certify they're microplastic-free. Because you got to believe the labels. Maybe just, if it says gluten-free, just assume that they're microplastics-free, too. Just one word, ladies and gentlemen. Microplastics. And now... Once I had a secret that lived within the heart of me All too soon my secret became impatient to be free And my secret's no secret anymore News of secrets. You know, we've been told for years the difference between Apple and Google and Facebook is that Apple doesn't sell your personal information. Its business model does not depend on selling your personal information. But that wasn't accounting for China. Chinese, they're killing it. China, they're killing it. Chinese authorities say they've uncovered a massive underground operation involving the sale of Apple users' personal data. 22 people have been detained on suspicion of infringing individuals' privacy, illegally obtaining their digital personal information. That's according to um, Agence France Pass. Of the 22 suspects, 20 were employees of an Apple, quote, direct, domestic direct sales company and outsourcing company in China, whatever that means. The suspects allegedly used, Tom? Allegedly? Mm-hmm an internal company computer system to gather users' names, phone numbers, Apple IDs, and other data, which they sold as part of a scam worth more than seven and a half, well, almost seven and a half million dollars. The statement referred to domestic employees of Apple. It's unclear whether they were directly employed by the company or by suppliers or vendors. It didn't specify whether the data belonged to Chinese or non-Chinese customers. An Apple spokesman declined to comment on the matter. Even though he was wearing a black T-shirt, local police didn't respond to requests for comment. Police across more than four provinces apprehended the suspects last weekend, dismantling their online network. They allegedly charged between a buck fifty and twenty-six fifty for pieces of the illegally extracted data. The sale of personal information is common in China, so let's all move there. It uh, implemented, at the beginning of this month, a controversial new law aimed at protecting the country's networks and private user information. But in December, an investigation by a newspaper in Hong Kong exposed a black market for private data gathered from police and government databases. Databases can't hurt you. News of secrets. Shh! You didn't hear that, did you? And now, ladies and gentlemen, the evolution. Wow. Do you believe in that? Of a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Previously, tales of airport security. But now, adjusting to this new era, tales of airport civility, won't you?
for the small fraternity of people who make their living making music with uh, actual instruments, few things are more terrifying than seeing an expensive defenseless instrument to disappear on the conveyor belt of the airport. airport. Horror stories abound, according to the Washington Post. A musician checked his $45,000 75-year-old cello. Airport workers promptly placed it beneath somebody's golf clubs, snapping its neck. Well, at least they didn't snap the cellist's neck. Or maybe uh, a noted German soloist said airport workers roughed up his cello case. After his flight, he found his $20,000 bow broken in half. $20,000 for a bow? Yes. A Florida State University music student on a flight to Tallahassee found splinters of wood where her cello used to be. Apparently, airlines don't like cellos. But now a Houston-based gate agent at United Airlines told Jennifer Correa she'd have to check her 17th century violin, which costs more than her car. The first words out of her mouth after that information was, quote, where are my other options? The situation soured from there, according to her attorney. Correa is a classical violinist. She was on her way to play with the Missouri Symphony in their summer season. She asked for an airport supervisor. The supervisor said there were no other options. The violin had to be checked. Her attorney said, Correa told the supervisor, I can't not take my violin on board. I'll pay the money. I'll take another flight. Just tell me what I can do. She told the agent she would appeal to their bosses and ask the supervisor for her name. According to the lawyer, the supervisor said she wanted Correa's name and reached for the tag on her luggage. Without provocation, said the lawyer's statement, the supervisor then lunged for Miss Correa's case and incredibly tried to wrestle it away from the musician. I start screaming, help, 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 help. Can somebody record what's happening because this lady's trying to take my personal suitcase from me, Correa told local TV station. The supervisor said she was going to call security. Correa apparently responded, please do. Then the supervisor dashed off. That was the last Correa saw of her. During the scuffle, according to the lawyer, Correa's hand was injured because she only plays the violin with it. She doesn't believe there's permanent damage, but she went to see a hand specialist. United Airlines, oh, didn't offer an account of what happened. But a spokesman for the airline, that is a good job these days, emailed a statement to the Washington Post, quote, We're disappointed any time a customer has an experience that does not live up to his or her expectation. We're reaching out to Miss Correa. Not the way the agent did by just grabbing the uh, violin case, I guess. Because I was reaching out. We're reaching out to Miss Correa to gain a better understanding of what occurred and to offer assistance. The lawyer said someone from United left a voicemail on Correa's phone. He asked that anyone who had a video recording of the confrontation can contact him. Why can't these people be polite? Asked the lawyer. Everybody knows if you're frustrated with a surgeon, you don't grab their hands. This supervisor was willing to get in a wrestling match over a violin. Unquote. Federal law requires airports to accommodate musicians who want to carry their instruments with them in the airplane's cabin. The lawyer says he's not certain whether United violated that law. What happened to Correa? She booked a flight the next day on American and carried her violin with her the whole time.
News of airport civility, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now time to follow the dollar. The Trump International Hotel in Washington, just down the street from the White House, owned by, uh, actually run by you-know-who, it's owned still by the federal government. It received $270,000 from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That's according to findings disclosed by the Department of Justice. That uh, accounted for lodging, parking, and catering. A spokesman for the Trump Organization told ABC News the money would be donated later. Quote, in accordance with our foreign patronage policy, we intend to donate the profits of this transaction at the end of the calendar year. Unquote. They didn't specify which calendar. Let's check on that, please. The transaction is likely to renew the debate over Trump's family businesses, which were turned over to his sons. Saudi Arabia is currently fighting to roll back a 2016 law that allows U.S. terror victims to sue them they're seeking Trump support in that effort. Saul was first reported by the conservative website, The Daily Caller. It's um, another example of what's believed to be, by some at least, the continuing violation <laughs> President Trump of the Emoluments Clause to the Constitution, which f- forbids any federal employee from accepting emoluments, payments, from foreign governments, although the Hill reports the Justice Department is prepared to uh, make the case that that doesn't apply. We'll see. We'll see you in court. We'll see you in court, everybody. Um, we're so obsessed about Russia for reasons that have, I guess, something to do with the three or four decades that we spent feeling that well seeing those videos where the red paint was just coming down and covering the globe the u but reuters reports this week the u.s says china is likely to build more overseas bases including in pakistan well nothing could be wrong with that but as in, in past years the pentagon has renewed its concerns about cyber spying, saying U.S. government-owned computers were again targeted by China-based intrusions all through last year. We don't hear, where's the fulmination about? These and past intrusions focused on accessing networks and extracting information, said the Pentagon report. China, that continued, uses its cyber capabilities to support intelligence collection against U.S. diplomatic, economic, and defense industrial base sectors. Okay, as long as they're not interfering with an election. I guess that's okay. Speaking of which, and speaking of the the L word this week, in the first 137 days of his presidency, fact-checkers for the Washington Post caught him, caught President, President Trump, saying false or misleading things, 623 times. That sounds like a fairly impressive figure until you remember that in the year and a half run-up 
to the Iraq War. At least one think tank calculated that the Bush administration had told a total of 935 lies. From Southern California, this is Le Show. And now, news of bad banks. Bad bank. Well, we've been talking about uh, Wells Fargo so much lately. 
and their miscreancy in creating all these fake accounts. We've forgotten about Bank of America. They're bad, too. Let's be fair. Bank of America has just paid a construction company called Tudor Perini $37 million to get out of a lawsuit claiming that the bank defrauded the construction company by selling it millions of dollars of securities that it knew were going to go bluey. The settlement was disclosed by the construction firm in a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission resolves the lawsuit filed against the bank way back in 2011. Yeah, lawsuits take time. Federal Appeals Court in November revived the lawsuit. A jury trial had been scheduled for June 19th, but oh, the parties informed the court they had reached a settlement just just before that happened. Terms weren't disclosed then. Under the agreement, neither side made any admission of liability or wrongdoing. Just one of them paid the other a lot of money. That's all. It doesn't mean it. It doesn't prove anything. A spokesman for Bank of America didn't respond to a request for comment, which was uh, filed by Reuters. In the lawsuit, Tudor Perini, the construction company, said Bank of America pushed it to buy so-called auction rate securities in 2007 and 2008, despite knowing the market was, quote, one step away from illiquidity, meaning you can't sell them if you need to. You can't. It's an investment you can't get out of. It's it's a straitjacket. It's a financial straitjacket. The uh, auction rate market at the time worth $330 billion seized up in February 2008 when dealers stopped supporting it, saddling investors with illiquid debt that had often been marketed by folks like Bank of America as a cash substitute. You know, like Bitcoin is now. I'm going to say this right here, right now. Ain't nothing wrong with cash. You know? Cash is your friend. It's not tracked. You know? Google Google doesn't combine your credit card records with their um, search history of you when you pay cash. I know it's it's dirty, but that helps you build uh, you know your immune system. Make friends with cash, won't you? Thank you very much. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, coming right here. Coral Gables Mayor Coral Gables, Florida Mayor Jim Kaysen shared some thoughts with Bloomberg this week when he first started worrying about sea level rise. He asked his staff to count not just how much coastline the city had, 47 miles, or the value of the property along that coast, $3.5 billion. He also told them to find out how many boats dock inland from the bridges that span the city's canals. That's 302. What matters, he guessed, will be the first time a mast fails to clear the bottom of one of those bridges because the water level had risen too far. Those boats are going to be the canary in the mine, he said. Kaysen became mayor in 2011 after retiring from the Foreign Service of the United States. Quote, when the boats can't go out, the property values go down, unquote. If property values start to fall, banks could stop writing 30-year mortgages for coastal homes, shrinking the pool of able buyers and sending prices lower. Still, those properties make up a quarter of Coral Gables' tax base. If the revenue fell, the city will struggle to provide the services that make it a desirable place to live, causing more sales 
and another drop in revenue. Kind of a vicious circle. All that could happen before the rising sea consumes a single home. According to Zillow, some 934,000 existing Florida properties worth more than $400 billion are at the risk of being submerged by the end of the century. That's a look. Nobody's could. The impact is already being felt in South Florida. Tidal flooding now predictably drenches inland streets even when the sun is out, thanks to the region's porous limestone bedrock. Well, nobody told me about the limestone bedrock before. Salt water is creeping into the drinking water supply. The area's drainage canals rely on gravity as the oceans rise. The water utilities had to install giant pumps to push the water into the ocean because the gravity don't work no more. The effects of climate-driven price drops could ripple across the economy, eventually force the federal government to decide what is owed to people whose home values are ruined by climate change. The chief economist at Freddie Mac warned in a report that last year of a housing crisis for coastal areas more severe than the Great Recession, one that could spread through banks, insurers, and other industry. And other and, and unlike the recession, there's no hope of a bounce back in those property values. Nobody thinks it's coming as fast as it is, says Dan Kipnis, the chairman of Miami Beach's Maritime and Waterfront Protection Authority. He's been trying to find a buyer for his home in Miami Beach for almost a year. He has lowered his asking price twice. He was just too greedy, don't you think? And of course, will the catalyst be a bank refusing to issue a mortgage? Will it be an insurer refusing to issue a policy? Or will the trigger be one or two homeowners who decide to be the first to sell? News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature this broadcast. So, the week for um, you know by by the way the the phrase as the word liar has come into political usage again another phrase has returned to the political lexicon credibility gap i've heard it all around that uh, this administration has a credibility gap you know that's not necessarily a bad thing the Credibility Gap wants to help you bring out your better self. If you look good, you feel good too. And the Credibility Gap can do that for you. Shopping convenience, easy to park. The Credibility Gap is really a lark. The quality's high and the prices are thrifty. The Credibility Gap can make you look nifty. See, it could be a good thing. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this was a momentous week for <laughs> President Trump. Um, it was supposed to be Infrastructure Week. Remember that? That kind of went um, blowing away like uh, dandelion fluff in the wake of the buildup, the mom- really remarkable, momentous, I mean, any any version of Godzilla would envy the publicity buildup for the testimony by former FBI Director James Comey uh, on Thursday of this past week. Uh, Testimony which Comey himself upstaged, interestingly, by releasing his opening statement, which is usually read at the opening of the hearing, hence the name, 
Um, he released it a day early and then didn't read it uh, at, at the hearing. But a lot of people read it, of course, in advance. One of the facts that gets lost in the welter of interpretations about Comey's testimony is the peculiar one that although he and Donald Trump are calling each other liars, Comey said, in fact, that uh, after his first solo meeting, maybe the second one, first one was called by Comey to talk about the so-called salacious dossier. But after the second one, Comey thought he didn't trust Donald Trump not to lie about the contents of that meeting, so he began writing contemporaneous memos for the file, like lawyers do. Nobody on the committee, neither Republican or Democrat, asked him, why didn't you think Donald Trump uh, would uh, desist from telling a, a, a mendacious version of that meeting? Nobody asked him that. It just assumed, oh, yeah, oh, right, you thought he was going to lie. On the other hand, Comey did say that one of the weirdest claims that President Trump had made about all this, that Comey had assured him three times, three separate times, on three separate occasions, that he, Donald Trump, was not under investigation, was true, which Trump trumpeted in his tweet the next day, even though in the rest of the tweet he called Comey a liar. Trump has hired, uh, well, there, there, before we get to that, there are now a number of reports from a number of sources that he is very unhappy um, that he has rage-filled episodes where he rails against Sean Spicer, his um, press secretary, he is now uh, unhappy with Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, for recusing himself on the subject of the Russia thing. He's hired, at the advice of almost everybody, an outside attorney to handle the Russian thing. That's um, Mark Kasowitz, who's... uh, described by the New York Times as the toughest of the tough guys. He's represented Trump in at least, well, in in his divorces and in his bankruptcies. He's also represented Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch. Well, that's, that's a bad look. As you may be aware, a lot of the discussion about uh, Comey's testimony has revolved around Comey's statement, Lordy, I hope there are tapes of my conversations with Trump. Trump has refused to say whether or not they exist. I wish there was a way to sort of boil us all down. Oh, there is. This week, for the first time, the competition gets cutthroat as L words fly around the boardroom. And we don't mean liberal. And for the businessman turned president, more than ever before, words are now more than just words and less. Rex. Yes, Mr. President. Good to be getting this FaceTime with you, sir. 
Your team's not doing well. That's why you're here. I thought we were making significant progress and building on the uh, <clears throat> progress we made on the big trip, especially in the uh, damage control dimension. You thought there was damage? Well... This is what's killing us. The negativity of all these teams. Mm-hmm. Rex, can I be honest with you? You know, the, there are days when I think I should just fire everybody... Do this job by myself. <laughs> In all honesty, Mr. Trump, that's just not possible. I know. It's a fault of mine. I hate firing people. Leaves nobody to blame. So look, Rex, you have an important task this week. Yes, sir. I consider all of it important. I mean really important. Mm. I want you to go out and deliver a statement that calls on our Arab friends to cut back on the anti qatar stuff. The stuff we agreed uh, on in the Arab summit. They're coming on too strong with it, doing too much of a number. That's what my friends tell me. Your Qatari friends? What are you, wise guy? My New York real estate friends, if it's any of your business, which would be okay even if it's not, because I like you. Thank you, sir. I Meantime, would... I'm going to issue a statement supporting the sanctions against Qatar right after your statement. Well, but won't that tend to confuse the Saudis as to our... Actual position? You say that like it's a bad thing. It's actually a very big part of the plan. Can you do it? Well, it it puts me in a kind of awkward position. That's the other part of the plan. I love win-win. All right, sir. I'll have the staff work up something for release uh, next... Couple of hours, right? Okay. Absolutely. There's what you might call an improvisational quality to all of this. It reminds me of when I was dating and I I took my soon-to-be wife to the 1 a.m. show at the Comedy Store in Houston. Sean, Spicer, you're more famous than me now, right? Uh, Oh, I don't think so. Uh, That that woman stopped doing me on TV. It's in reruns. I see it all the time. Uh, I'm doing fewer briefings, as we agreed. It's not helping. I'm still in the crapper. Oh, we're winning, sir. Nobody believes Comey. You know, I should fire you just for telling me what you think I want to believe. <laughs> but I almost had you believing it, right? Sean, this isn't about what I believe. It's about what everybody else believes. What I believe is between me and my... Hmm. God? Maker? Lawyer. Mm. Your task this week, Sean, Mm -hmm. is to dummy up. I don't want to hear a peep out of you this week at all. Can you do that? Well... Just nod yes or no. Good. So, Mr. Trump, glad to be on the team. Mark, if this is a team, the Yankees are a friggin' conglomerate. (laughs) So, A, welcome aboard, and B... What the heck do I do? Sorry, we've been through a lot worse. Two of the bankruptcies, the messier of the divorces... Tell it to the hand. Look, your task this week is to stop this witch hunt, whatever it takes. It may take you not using Twitter. Except that. That's my connection to my base. Can I read the tweets before you send them? If you want to be in my bathroom at six in the morning, sure. That's a pass. Look, sir, I propose, as usual, to honor the keys to good lawyering. The three Ds. Deny, delay, and denounce. Okay. And what do I do? Look, Comey thinks you've got tapes. 
The Congress thinks you've got tapes. So make tapes. Not sex tapes. Believe me, I'm a little too... You don't like to write memos. Don't even like to read memos. So video your recollections of every meeting, past and future. We'll fix the date stamps. This way, it's not your word against his. It's his memos against my tapes, right? Right. Jeff. Attorney General Sessions, we've had our disagreements, right? I've been with you since the beginning, sir. It's a long time ago. This is now. And I think you're hurting me. Well, your task this week, very simply, is to stop hurting me. I don't know if you could do that. You know, I'm supposed to testify before House Appropriations. Appropriations are nice, right? Yes, but I could testify before House Intelligence instead. They'd certainly like that. You know what? That's your task. You can do that, right? That's what they tell me. Okay, this is my memo of my meeting with Jeff Sessions. We discussed his problems in meeting my standards of professionalism for his office. I then suggested that he proactively remove all doubts by testifying to the House Intelligence Committee. It took some convincing, but he agreed. And a memo, right? New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make memos great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. The presidentus. It's not what you think. Whatever you think.
You're gonna love them. We're talking about credibility gap, potato chips. Once you try them, you'll never be without credibility gap, potato chips. The greatest brand in all the land. That's the credibility gap. See? It can be a good thing. Now, the apologies of the week. That's always a good thing. We're so sorry. Well, guess who apologized this week? Bill Cosby. He says it, that he apologized to the family of the woman he's accused of drugging and assaulting only because her mother thought he was a dirty old man. That's according to testimony read to the jury Friday at the comedian's trial. His explanation was contained in a deposition he gave over a decade ago as part of a lawsuit filed by the woman whose allegations have resulted in this trial. Part of the deposition became public nearly two years ago. He recounted a television, telephone conversation he had with uh, Andrea Costan's mother. I apologize to this woman, he said, but my apology was, my God, I'm in trouble with these people because this is an old man and their young daughter and the mother sees this. Unquote. In the deposition, he was asked, do you think there would be financial consequence to you if the public believed that you gave Andrea a drug that took away her ability to consent and then had sexual contact with her? Yes, he said. The trial continues. I believe the prosecution is rested. Who wouldn't? A moment of silence was held before Wednesday's World Cup qualifying match between Saudi Arabia and host Australia to remember the two Australian victims of last week's terrorist attacks in London. Most of the Saudis appeared to go about their pregame business, leading to boos from the crowd. The pregame moment of silence was approved by both Asian Football Confederation officials and the Saudi team, but Saudi officials informed game officials that they would not be taking part. They were advised by Saudi team officials that this tradition was not in keeping with Saudi culture and they would move to their side of the field and respect our custom while taking their own positions on the field. But Saudi club teams have in the past observed moments of silent on, silence on the field. The Center for the International Communication of the Ministry, Culture and Information of the Kingdom provided a statement from the president of the Saudi Football Federation. The federation deeply regrets and unreservedly apologizes for any offense caused by the failure of some members of the representative team of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to formally observe the one-minute silence in memory of the victims of the London terrorist attack. The players did not intend any disrespect to the memories of the victims, nor did it cause upset to their families, friends, or any individual affected by the atrocity. The Saudi Arabian Football Federation condemns all acts of terrorism and extremism, except those that we finance. I know they didn't say that. Bill Maher has again apologized for his use of the N-word on HBO's Real Time, engaging in an extended conversation about race with academic Michael Eric Dyson and with ICE... Oh, was it iced tea or ice cube? I want you to school me. I did a bad thing, Mara said at the start of the interview with Dyson. He opened the edition by thanking the audience for letting a sinner in your midst. HBO issued a statement condemning the remark. In the uh, interview last week, the, uh, Senator Ben Sass, Sassy Sass of Nebraska invited Maher to come to Nebraska to work in the fields. Maher replied, work in the fields? I'm a house? N-word. HBO, as I say, issued a statement condemning the remark. Maher issued an apology the next day. He said in the conversation with Dyson, did Maher, that there's a lot of BS apology in America. I'm against that. But he said, in this case, the apology for the use of the N-word was appropriate. The comic mind goes to a weird place, he said. What, Fresno? 
That is why I apologize freely, and I reiterate it tonight. That is sincere. Unquote Bill Maher. Of course, neglected to mention Kathy Griffin's apology from last week. The uh, comedian apologized for posing the picture, uh, uh, photograph of a, uh, what looked like a severed head of President Trump. She has been fired by CNN from the wonderful New Year's Eve show she does with Anderson Cooper on that news channel. Sonoma State University President Judy Sakaki is facing public criticism from a group of her faculty and students over her apology to a parent who was angry about a provocative, politically charged poem read last month by a student during a commencement ceremony. An address Sakaki called a mistake. The uh, poem was full of criticisms of President Trump and was full of um, profanities. Sakaki told one of the parents in an email she regretted the inclusion of the poem in the commencement ceremony, blaming a new graduation format for insufficient oversight of program content. Workers aboard a United Airlines flight were helping a disabled woman, Erica Fulton, into her airplane seat when they dropped her against a window, injuring her so badly she required surgery, according to a lawsuit that happened at um, Bush Airport in Houston. Fulton was headed from Tampa Bay to, Houston, uh, to Austin when she stopped in Houston for a brief layover. She left the airport with an injured neck and a torn rotator cuff and her right shoulder, according to the lawsuit. It's unclear how she was injured so badly. She suffers from a degenerative spinal disease. A spokesman for United said, We hold all of our vendors to high standards and strive to provide great service to all of our customers. We sincerely apologize to Ms. Fulton for her experience while traveling with us and have covered the cost of the repair to the wheelchair. Another CNN host, don't have no job no more, CNN host Reza Aslan has apologized for a tweet he sent out calling President Trump a piece of excrement, shorter version of the word. He uh, took down that tweet and offered a statement of apology. When in the first few minutes of the terror attack in London, the president tweeted about his travel ban, I lost my cool and responded to him in a derogatory fashion. That's not like me. I should have used better language. I apologize for my choice of words. CNN has not renewed his series for a second season as a result. Two weeks after the Montana body slam, newly elected Representative Greg Gianforte of Montana formally apologized to the reporter he body slammed in a letter on Wednesday evening, writing, My physical response to your legitimate question was unprofessional, unacceptable, and unlawful. I had no right to respond the way I did. You were doing your job. He's making a $50,000 contribution to the committee to protect journalists. That's an apology. City of Hayward, California, apologized for a tweet promoting a city council meeting to consider sanctuary city status that included a cartoon of a taco and the words, Let's talka, let's taco about it. I'll tell you, that's spectacular. But you remember Piers Morgan? He uh, took over from Larry King. He was going to be the new Larry King. And he ended up being the old Piers Morgan. Now he's back in Britain, and he had harsh words for Ariana Grande in the wake of the Manchester Arena attack. He criticized her for returning home instead of visiting victims. He's now apologized because she visited victims. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over at NPR Worldwide throughout Europe, the use and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on the mighty Soho Radio in London, available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com, available as a free podcast from SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org, and uh, available around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at HarryShear.com and KCSN.org. And it'd be just like me lying to you right now, right here, right now, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A typical show shop over to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com. And I'm at Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network so long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>